We hope you are enjoying our expanded podcast schedule. For the month of July, we have something new for our members. Each month, members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of July, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code fireworks at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code fireworks. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome to Deep State Radio. This is Rosa Brooks. I'm standing in again for our regular host, David Rothkopf, who has once again vanished into the Deep State bunker. We, we hope he will resurface at some point. Joining me today, we have Ed Luce, the U.S. national editor and a columnist at the Financial Times. Welcome, Ed. Good to see you. And we have Corey Shockey. Corey is, of course, a senior fellow and the director of foreign and defense policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Welcome, Corey. It is so nice to be back in the silo with my fellow Deep State Radio nerds. Well, it's great to see you both. I can see you. Our listeners can only hear you, but I can see you. And if our internet connection holds out, um, we'll all be able to see each other. But here in the deep state, these things are always a little bit iffy. Uh, So it's been a busy week in foreign policy. Uh, Many world leaders have been meeting at the NATO summit. And I think the headline is, well, I think we've got two headlines, one being probably promises, promises to Ukraine. And the other being that Turkey has suddenly dropped its opposition to Swedish membership uh, in NATO. And Corey, let me start with you. Let's talk about Turkey first. What is going, what what do you think just happened? Why did Erdogan change his mind? He had been absolutely opposed to allowing Sweden into NATO. Suddenly, uh, unexpectedly, he became all sweetness and light. What just happened? I think he realized that that the balance had tipped between allies wanting Sweden in so desperately that they were willing to concede Turkey uh, support for his re-election phone call and a one-on-one meeting with President Biden, F-15s for Turkey, changes to Swedish law in order to um, make them make Sweden less hospitable to PKK folks uh, and others. He had reached the tipping point between allies being willing to give those things and with his last minute suggestion that, that Turkey would only consider Sweden's membership once the European Union considered Turkish membership. He had jumped the shark and allies were exasperated. and. 
Uh, he's a good enough negotiator to realize he had wrung the last ounce of blood out of this turnip and therefore capitulated. Uh, well, it was, um, uh, I think, uh, a very interesting summit in that Zelensky began in this rather irritable um, mood that, you know, a guaranteed Ukraine timeline for membership of NATO hadn't been provided, Germany and the United States in particular, um, putting a break on that uh, on that train, which was led, of course, by the Baltics, Poland and the UK. Um, but by the end of the summit, Zelensky was back into uh, back into a spirit of comedy with with the 31 NATO members. Uh, having clearly had some pretty frank conversations with them behind the scenes, I think one of the one of the um, irritants there, well, two, two in particular. One is that if a year ago NATO, the U.S., and others had supplied the kinds of weapons that Ukraine had been asking for, its its counteroffensive might be going a little bit better now than it has been going. I mean, we're, we're into the F sixteen decision. But that decision's nowhere near being sort of realized uh, on the ground or in the air. Um, and that's um, a, a, an understandable irritation from, from Zelensky's part. And then talking of Turkey, um, you know, if, if, as Biden reiterated, Ukraine's membership in the future will be contingent on it meeting a number of criteria, including democratization, well, that's, that's, I can understand why a nation at war um, uh, led by a democratically elected leader, Zelensky, might be a little bit irritated about that, you know, given that NATO has never said being a democracy is a precondition of membership. Turkey um, was one of the early joiners of NATO and for most of its existence has not been a democracy and arguably now isn't a democracy. So you can understand Zelensky's um, frustrations uh, but on the other hand, um, you know, it's not it's not good practice diplomatically to criticize the people who are funding you and supplying you with weapons. So uh, I think it's a good thing that 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 was resolved by the end of this summit. And I suspect it will probably be forgotten. What what do you think, Corey? Yeah, I had the same reaction that, um, you know, he. He's right to be frustrated because he's trying to hold together a free society under siege um, and is taking enormous losses. But I think it was constructive that Ben Wallace, the British defense minister, the country that has been most forward-leaning in assistance to Ukraine and whose early strategic moves drove and continue to drive American policy, um, I think it's it was helpful for Ukraine that that Ben Wallace pointed out a little more gratitudes in order, given how hard other politicians are working to keep public support for what's being given to Ukraine. So I think it was understandable, but but one of the few diplomatic missteps the leadership of Ukraine has made during the conflict conduct of the war, uh, that President Zelensky's irritation was so visible. That said, uh, I would have been happier, and I think Europe would be more stable and secure if the NATO allies had said, 
at next summer's Washington summit, we expect Ukraine will have won this war and will be admitted to NATO membership. Uh, I think that actually would have been helpful to the war effort and good for the alliance. How do you think about the issue of an invitation to Ukraine, Ed? Um, I, I tend to towards what I guess has become the Biden administration's position or has long been the Biden administration's position, which to give them, um, you know, a fixed sort of date, a concrete date um, uh, post-war, um, because obviously Ukraine can't join in the middle of a war that would immediately put us all at war, NATO at war with Russia. But to give them a concrete date would actually incentivize Putin um, or, or um, those around him, the sort of the Putin defense establishment, um, an incentive to prolong this war indefinitely um, and 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 keep Ukraine from reaching the position where it could be eligible to to join. Uh, in other words, post war. Um, so I, I tend to think that. Um, I also tend to think that this is a fairly technical argument. It's it's it's. It's dominating the politics in NATO at the moment. But what really matters is, are we getting the weapons um, that Ukraine needs at the speed it requires in order to um, drive home the point to Russia that this war is lost, whatever you do? Um, and I'm not sure, I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, the NATO membership thing is is anything more than a technicality at this point because there is no doubt that we support Ukraine to the hilt and will continue to do so um barring some very bizarre um development i mean Corey, what do you think of that that's that's probably conventional wisdom so um i do disagree a little bit it does seem to me that the pres that the NATO language on Ukraine membership, you're right, it's a technicality, but it's symbolically important. And it, our hesitance, particularly the American hesitance on that issue, conveys to the Russians that we're actually not backing the Ukrainians to the hilt. It's a continuation of the trepidation with which we have offered weapons slowly and incrementally in order to minimize our own risk, which the president's not wrong to be worried about escalation. But his policy actually encourages the, the Russians to continue to make nuclear threats, to make threats of widening the war. It, it incentivizes nuclear proliferation by other countries because the United States who it could be argued is the big winner of Ukraine's success in this war. We're the ones that are most fearful about outcomes, and yet we're the ones in the strongest and strengthening position. So I, I think the president's hesitation on the pace of weapons, on talking about Ukrainian membership, uh, encourages the Russians exactly to undercut the belief that we're really all in on this. So how does, um, for, Corey, from your point of view, how does the decision to uh, give Ukraine cluster bombs fit into this? So uh, we, 
that Ukraine and we were going to run out of 155 shells is easy math that was evident eight months ago. And so I'm glad the president made the decision to allow the export of cluster bombs to a country that's already mined and got unexploded ordnance all over it. So I think the president was right to let the Ukrainians be the people who decide whether the risk of cluster munitions was worth the potential gain. But it's one more example of us, you know, this was knowable eight months ago. We should have made the decision eight months ago and making it now is going to be helpful, but not nearly as helpful as eight months ago. How do you think about it? Tell, talk about the British position on this, because the, the Sunak government has been particularly interesting on this one. Yeah, well, I mean, the Ben Wallace that you mentioned earlier, the defense minister, he did show some irritation um, with Zelensky. And you know, I, think he, I think he said, we're not Amazon. You can't just sort of, you know, get packaged orders delivered to your doorstep, uh, doorstep two days later. Um, and that then, you know, prompted um, that little exchange between the two. Um, I think the British government um, has an advantage over the Biden administration in that it doesn't need to keep looking over its shoulder to the right. The right in Britain is very much behind um, this war effort. There are some extreme Putinista elements, you know, uh, um, amongst some of the really far right, but they're not mainstream in the way that you've seen with the Freedom Caucus crowd. Um, and of course, people around Trump um, are in the Republican Party. And so this is, this is a relatively um, um, good way of demonstrating that Britain is still part of the international community, that it's still a strong European power, that it's still a reliable NATO ally. And that, that message hasn't been lost on its European, former European partners in the EU. Um, it has, as you say, been the most forward-leaning of the European, um, of the, of the old European powers, I think, arguably, as a sort of share of their military, the Baltics and Poland have, have been even more forward-leaning. Um, but it's been considerably more forward-leaning than Germany and France. And that, you know, I think is, first of all, the right position. Second of all, I see no real challenge to that in British politics. It's, it's a position the Labour Party supports. Um, uh, and third, I think it's it sort of rebalanced this idea that Brexit was everything. Um, and that Britain has just sort of walked off the map, never to be heard of again. It's sort of, uh, you know, put put some corrective on that solipsistic British uh, navel-gazing. Um, and so I, I see it as, as something that's going to continue and as something that's very positive. There was a very interesting picture from Vilnius um, of Biden. It was a NATO leader's picture, but it was Biden there with... Um, uh, Sunak, um, uh, the Polish president, and the Baltic leaders, and that was kind of that's the strong front. Would you yeah, agree? I agree with that. Yeah, I also th think that um, Britain's policy on Ukraine has been the proof of what the integrated review said was possible for post-Brexit Britain, which is that with a relatively small um, budget and fighting force, 
by taking decisions, strategic decisions early and decisively, they can drive the debate in the broader Western community. And I think we've seen that repeatedly by the British government where Ukraine um, is, uh, is at risk. Uh, there was a tempest in a teapot on Twitter or in a Twitter pot. Anyway, Twitter pot sounds too much like chamber pot, which feels actually pretty appropriate for Twitter yeah. just now. But I noticed lots of commentary about President Biden's trip to Britain and the trooping of the guard with the king. What was that all about? And, and are actual British people upset about this? Uh, I mean, actual British people consistently um, like Biden, um, but actual British tabloids seem to just sort of be finding all kinds of mostly imaginary sort of Biden anglophobia, signs of anglophobia, which is absurd. And it's a sort of time-honored thin-skinness um, in the British tabloid world. Um, they think he's, you know, um, because he calls himself an Irish American, that makes him anti-British. I mean, it, it's it's a sort of fundamental misreading and uh, paranoia that I'm afraid isn't anything new about the British media culture. But as far as I can see, in terms of opinion polls, doesn't reflect um, doesn't reflect popular sentiment. Um, maybe it sells newspapers. I I find that hard to believe as well. Um, there was some kind of i didn't even pay it much attention but when when he was inspecting the troops at windsor when he was visiting charles um he was i don't know he hadn't learned his moves or, or he seemed to his mind seemed to be wandering you know he is an aging man and he looked a bit vague and uh, i have nothing more to say than that because uh, it's just so inconsequential um i have i have a different question for you which is um about France. France, Macron seems to have changed his tune on Ukraine and um, Ukrainian membership. But, you know, you talk about in terms of military and financial support for Ukraine, Britain being forward leaning. France, you know, by that measure is until now and perhaps further on been backward leaning or backward reclining. I don't know what the opposite of forward leaning is. Is, is that correct? Is that about to change? It's not clear to me, uh, to be honest. I think French policy under President Macron has become erratic. Uh, and he, he clearly understands that France, uh, that there is resentment in the Baltic states, Poland and the frontline states still about French policy under his predecessors. And Macron gave that great speech about how, you know, we're not telling you to shut up, we're listening. I thought that was a good move forward. I thought his point about um, supporting Ukrainian membership in NATO was a big and an important change, especially given the reticence France, ha France has had about continued NATO expansion. Um, um, so I think they're both positive changes. And it matters for France to have a strong alignment, in particular with Poland. Um, and defense policy has been a French strength historically. And so it's nice to see 
uh, those positive changes. But the thing about policy under Macron is you can just never tell when he's going to go walking to the back of the airplane and want to be think tanker in chief instead of the president of France and float an idea that's under going to undercut his own policy. Um, so uh, one more thing about the NATO summit, given that you brought up the president's age and given that you, uh, I have, if David were here, he, he would always drive us to a couple of political points. And in David's absence, goofing off in Sicily, Ed, I want to, I want to ask you two things. The first is, um, you know, I watched President Biden's press availability after the summit. And I have to say, as somebody who voted for him in 2020, it was distressing that he appeared so frail, so uh, wandering in his attention, struggling to read his own administration's policy. How salient uh, did, did you notice that? Do you think allies notice it? How salient do you think it is for allied concerns about American policy? Unfortunately, I think it's very salient. Um, uh, it's very hard not to notice that he is a, you know, he's an aging president and his, um, whilst there's no question that he, you know, is suffering from dementia or, or, or anything worse, he is, you know, getting older and he is getting more faltering. Um, you know, his aides' hearts are in their mouths every time he sort of jogs up to a podium or down airplane steps. Um, there was that sort of heart in mouth moment in Hiroshima in June when, um, you know, he went, he faltered, he sort of wobbled on the steps at the Hiroshima Memorial. Um, and, you know, he didn't have Jill Biden to hold on to and he didn't have uh, railings to reach out for him. Luckily, he didn't fall. But what if he did fall? What would that mean in terms of 2024 politics? I think, unfortunately, you know, uh, it, it could mean something quite devastating, uh, a, a viral, massively sort of circulated image like that, which would never go away. Um, could prove fatal. This is a presidential system. You are voting not just for parties and ideologies, but for an individual. And, you know, even, even Americans sympathetic to the Biden agenda and to, and to, to the Democrats, I think would be shaken um, by such an event. But your question, you know, asks what's happening now and is that significant? I think it is. It is significant for America's allies. They cannot hedge. There's no real obvious way of hedging against a return of Donald mm -hmm. Trump to the White House. Yeah. Hal Brands, my AEI colleague, has an excellent has an excellent Bloomberg column on the fact that it it's really you can feel anxiety about a Trump re-election thrumming through the relations of America's allies. And the choices that what, they're making about the United States. Corey, what what can they do? What how do they how do they prepare or ensure themselves against that eventuality? Is there anything practical? So I think the point you just made is exactly the right one, which is uh, there. 
given the centrality of the United States to the international order, it's very difficult to see how allies can effectively hedge against that failure. The country that I think has done the most interesting hedging without looking like it is affrontery towards the United States is Japan. I think for the last 15 years, the Japanese have been making an extraordinary set of strategic choices to model behavior. Like They come up with the idea of the Indo-Pacific. They come up with friendshoring. They come up with increasing resilience in supply chains and investing in mining and processing of rare earth metals as early as 2010. Um, they, with India, created an alternative infrastructure investment fund to the Belt and Road Initiative. They have been cascading um, Coast Guard ships and training to the Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, to help those countries improve their ability to protect their territorial and disputed waters against Chinese incursions. Um, so Japan has been working to strengthen middle power cooperation and taking policy initiatives that effectively hedge. But I don't see anybody else um, moving adroitly. Uh, we have a few more minutes, Ed, and I want to actually talk about another national security issue that you have written so powerfully about, which is education, and in particular, higher education in the United States. Um, you know, a, a great American advantage, a source of our power in the international order is the strength of American higher education, the attraction of our major universities. And you wrote a terrific piece um, about how we do admissions and the fundamental unfairness in a different way than affirmative action. Won't you please talk deep state radio listeners through your excellent foreign policy, uh, foreign affairs, God, over three financial times column on American higher education admissions. Well, thank you for that, for that very kind um, assessment. And this piece, um, his column last week, I mean, it, it was in response, obviously, to the Supreme Court move to end affirmative action in, in uh, higher education. And what, one of the reasons that I um, uh, wanted to write the piece is I saw a lot of commentators, I felt a little bit facile manner, lumping that decision in with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, with the gutting of um, you know, um, financing restrictions on elections with the ending of the Voting Rights Act. And I thought that was very lazy for a number of reasons. One, um, I think in substance, this was a good move. Two, I think it's popular. Consistently, you see ballot initiatives, affirmative action is rejected, including in many cases by a majority of non-whites. Uh, and if you see opinion polls um, for um, the latest ruling, um, the really big one, uh, a plurality of African-Americans support the ruling. So this to me is a, a really sort of classic example of an elite perspective being very different from majority sentiment, unlike Roe v. Wade, where they are aligned. Uh, but in terms of the substance, look, um, 
what what this I think is about as much as having diversity, optical diversity in terms of Ivy League admissions, um, is um, also about preserving the status quo. Uh, and if you look at the famous sort of ALDC measures, the the athletics legacy deans list and children of faculty, um, there was one very cited but boilerplate study that showed that 43% of Harvard intake are ALDC. It's a shocking number. Most of those are white, incidentally. It's a really shocking number. Um, and, you know, legacy predominates in that, although athletic, athletics, again, majority white. They're not black basketball players. Some are, but most aren't. I thought that was one really interesting point, that it's these niche, it's water polo, rowing, golf, which tend to be expensive elite sports. We tend to think of athletic admissions as basketball or football players, but that's not actually who the primary beneficiaries of athletic admissions are. The aristocratic sports. <laughs> They're, um, you know, these are, you, you've got to be somebody of resources, family of resources to train in most of those. Um, but what, I mean, you are a wonderful product of elite American education. What's your perspective? So um, uh, I saw a figure that Stanford, my alma mater, 20% uh, of Stanford admissions are legacy admissions, which uh, the, the entirety of faculty and dean's list and others would surely pump them up if not to the 43% you mentioned, well above one in five admissions. Um, I, so it's terrible, and you're exactly right. Um, my sister always points out to me that we focus predominantly on the elite institutions, the Ivy League, schools like Stanford, but they are never going to solve the problem of expanding access to um, minorities and people from underprivileged backgrounds because the sheer numbers of graduates are too small. Um, and so uh, we are right to kick the elite institutions about perpetuating privilege. And I think your focus on that is really important. Um, but, but we should also point out that they're not going to solve this problem because the scale of graduates just isn't large enough. And so finding ways to, to advance opportunity and increase diversity at all sorts of institutions. Um, you know, California has long had a fabulous system where community colleges and junior colleges feed into the major university system. And I think that's a wonderful way to expand opportunity um, because people don't have to be full-time students at the start or, or actually ever, but their performance is what propels them to greater, um, to the more elite institutions like Berkeley and UC San Diego and UCLA. I think you and your sister are absolutely right. I mean, just to sort of reinforce the point you just made, I did some um, statistical calculations for this and that the cohort of 18 to 24 year olds in America has got 31 million Americans in it, um, of whom 19 million don't go beyond high school. 
Um, 12 million uh, obviously go into uh, universities and, and community colleges. If you add up Ivy League, um, uh, currently studying Ivy League, plus Ivy League-like universities such as Stanford, Chicago, Duke, um, you get to 100,000 people. And those 100,000 people out of 31 million are dominating the debate. And that's just not where our priorities should be. So I fully agree with you. And on that note, uh, let's call an end to today's Deep State Radio. David, we miss you goofing off in Sicily. Rosa, we miss you um, because your internet connection bounced us off it. Ed, thank you for being a wonderful conversation partner on these important issues. And we hope to have the band back together next week. A real pleasure, Corey. Thank you so much. And likewise.